Last Sunday, when I had the privilege of preaching here, I made a lot of references to King Lear. And I didn't have any Shakespeare references planned for today. But then when we pushed the service to one o'clock, I started to think, well, I'll probably have to open with something from Henry V. That famous speech there on St. Crispin's Day. And Henry's rallying the troops. And he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. But thank the Lord, that's not the case. Even at this pushback time, it is very good to see God's church somewhat full. Um, Praise be to God for that. It's beautiful. Our sermon text this morning, as just read, is Hebrews 3, 7 through 17. Hebrews 3, 7 through 17. And we're going to approach the text this morning under two headings. Israel's example and our response. Israel's example and our response. So first, we'll look at Israel's example. Took a literature class back in my college days where I developed a lifelong love, this love affair for the American Southern Gothic novels, the Southern Gothic writers. People like Flannery O'Connor, the young Cormac McCarthy, which is my favorite Cormac McCarthy. And of course, sort of the godfather of the Southern Gothic novel, William Faulkner. Loved those writers. And I remember the professor quoting Faulkner in the class. And supposedly Faulkner was fond of saying that one must read 1,000 good books in order to write a decent one. Got to read 1,000 good books, he said, in order to write a decent one. Now, 1,000 good books, it's a lot of reading. Even if you're a pretty steady reader and you knock out a book every single week, a good book every week, and you do that, that's going to take you about 50 years of reading a good book every week. I'm 20 years, 20 years of reading a good book every week to reach 1,000 good books in order to write a halfway decent one. Now, I don't think Faulkner's engaging in a lot of hyperbole there. Writing well is difficult. It's hard to do. Even reading well is difficult. It's hard to read well. I'm sure some of you notice that when you pick up your Bible and you're like, man, I'm, I'm hearing the words, I'm getting through them, but I am not understanding them. And just like with writing well, Well, the only real way to get better at reading is to read a lot. But beyond the simple practice of just reading more and continually engaging with text, there are some helpful strategies that will instantly make you a better reader. So follow this strategy, and when you leave here today, you will be a better reader. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever received in regards to reading well, and by reading well, I mean comprehending what I read, is to stop at every conjunction, every transition, every connecting word, and ask yourself, do I understand what the author is linking? Do I understand what the author is linking here? The most important words, and this is particularly true of the biblical text, the most important words are phrases like, yet, but, because of this. It follows then, furthermore, Likewise, conversely, phrases like, on the other hand, as a result of this, when you encounter those words or those phrases, slow down, stop, and ask yourself, do I understand the transition the author is about to make? You do that, you'll instantly be a better reader. 
Our text today, it starts with one of those most important connecting words. Our text starts with the word, therefore. Anytime you see therefore in the Bible, stop. Therefore. Right at the beginning of our passage, that therefore, it moves us from the great examples and the obedience of Moses and Christ that the author has just been talking about. That therefore moves us from those men and leaders, Moses and Christ, who the author tells us were faithful in the house of God. And that therefore moves us to something different indeed. We move from that wonderful joint witness of Moses and Christ to the unfaithfulness and the disobedience of the Israelites. It's quite a dramatic drop-off that that therefore brings us. Now, it's important to note the way that the text that immediately precedes ours, the way that that text ends. It ends by saying that we are God's house if. If's another one of those big scary words in the Bible. We are God's house if. Maybe the most important word in scripture, if. Scary word. We are God's house if we hold fast, the author tells us. If we keep the faith. If we listen. Those Israelites, whom our author just referenced, they did not listen. And hence, they did not enter into the house of God. They did not enter into his rest. They didn't enter into the promised land. The word if brings with it a warning. It brings with it a warning in our text this morning in the form of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is quoted at length in Hebrews chapter 3, and it is quoted as a warning for you and I, for us 21st century Christians. Psalm 95, as you heard in the Old Testament reading, it starts with this beautiful call to worship, a call to worship God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Oh, come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And the first seven verses follow in that pattern. The first seven verses of Psalm 95, a call to worship. And then in verse 7, there's a turn. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So it starts with this great call to worship, this call to praise. Then, don't harden your hearts, verse 7. And then in verses 8 through 11, we get the psalmist bringing a harsh indictment right out of the mouth of God. Praise, don't harden your hearts, indictment. Here's the indictment. God issues this severe warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It might be difficult for us to square these two parts of this psalm, right? This beautiful, joyful call to worship and praise God. And then secondly, this harsh warning against disobedience. The preeminent biblical scholar, some of you may be familiar with him, F.F. Bruce, he says here of this psalm that it teaches us, and I quote, it's a good thing to worship God, 
But acts and words of worship are acceptable only if they proceed with obedient hearts. It's a good thing to worship God. But acts and words of worship are acceptable only if they proceed with obedient hearts. It's a nice summary, but I'd like to zoom a little closer. Verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice. Notice our author uses the words, if you hear. That is because hearing is not a matter of an auditory sensation alone. It is that, but it's much more than that. Hearing is a matter of listening. It's a matter of paying attention. It's a matter of being obedient to the words. As a parent, if your child says, well, mom and dad, I did listen to you when you told me not to take the car out. I mean, I heard those words. I just then decided to take the car out. Well, that's not exactly what you have in mind when you say, listen, don't take the car out. So those that have ears will hear, and we will know that they have heard by their obedience. For as Jesus says, we will know them by their fruit. The Spirit, it makes the Word of God alive. And those that hear the living Word produce living works. They produce living fruit. And we might stop and ask ourselves, and when do they start producing the fruit? When do we see the fruit? But the author makes it quite clear. He uses the word today. Today, if you hear this voice. Today is a word that calls for immediacy. It calls for work. It calls for movement. It is a word that absolutely refuses a dilatory response. Today is a call for immediate action. The author of Hebrews, he issues his audience and us a very uh, firm warning in the form of Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, though they had seen my work. This, Psalm 95, is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 17, where the Israelites, they had just been led out of their 430-year bondage. They had just seen the mighty hand of God, and then they immediately start complaining. They start whining and whimpering, complaining of thirst. And then God tells Moses there to strike the rock, and out flowed water. God's past, powerful, immediate, visible redemption of the Israelites was ever so quickly forgotten. And they grumbled in disobedience. And the reason our author references this text is obvious enough. Hebrews is all about Christ. And the son, the son who was just called Christ in the book of Hebrews, which is all about the preeminence of Christ, the author doesn't use the word Christ until the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3. He doesn't talk about Christ as the anointed one. He's finally just called him the Christ at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3. And he's going to tell us that that guy, he is the true rock. He was a rock that was anointed to be struck by the rod of the fury and righteous wrath of God. And he was struck. He was battered. He was pounded. And while his lacerated body 
was pinned to a tree, one of the soldiers pierced his side, pierced it with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Christ is the rock from which flows streams of water. Everyone who drank of the water of the wilderness, well, they would eventually be thirsty again. But Jesus, as he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says, whoever drinks of water that I give, he'll never thirst again. The water that I will give will become in them springs of water welling up to eternal life. That Exodus story from the time of Israel leaving captivity in Israel all the way through their wilderness wandering, it is one of the central archetypical stories of all of humanity. It's one of the archetype stories, one of the things that makes sense of everything else. And it was the central story of the Israelites' understanding of themselves. And as their history is our family history, we would be served well in keeping that story, the Exodus story, at the forefront of our minds. Right? The Exodus story should line our interior imagination. And one good reason for that is because Israel is our family. And as you might be aware, family resemblances and family traits, they tend to die hard. Family resemblances, family traits, behaviors, they are passed down from one generation to the next. Any of you parents out there, any of you with children, will no doubt notice some of your traits manifesting themselves in your children. Sometimes good ones, but often the ones that stop you in your tracks as a parent are when you see your own less than noble traits start to bubble up in your children. They start to bubble up in your offspring. At that point, that's usually when I say, hey, Julie, they get that from you. (laughs) But we notice them, right? They bubble up. No, they mostly come from me. Our text says that our fathers, that is Israel, they put the gracious, long-suffering kindness of God to the test. They saw repeatedly, up close and personal, his work in their lives for 40 years. And yet they provoked him with their disobedience. They were able to see God's work daily as he gave them manna, bread from heaven, to nourish them on their pilgrimage. But the bread, it failed to nourish them in faith. That's our family example. That's Israel's example. So secondly, how should we respond? How should we respond? Well, just like Israel, we get to see God's gracious gift to us. We can see and taste on the bread of heaven in the Lord's Supper. Right? We who are hard of hearing, God gives us bread and wine so that we wouldn't be hard of tasting. Right? That's what that's there for. And we get it repeatedly. We hear the gospel. We hear the good news. We hear it in the preached word. But we also smell it and feel it and taste it at the table instituted by our Lord. And many of us, we have been eating on that bread from heaven for 40 plus years. And yet still, like the Israelites, like our family, we may be inclined to turn away from its nourishment. We may be inclined to reject the bread our Heavenly Father has given us 
in our wilderness journey. And instead, we choose to eat the scorpions and snakes of the world. We, just like the immediate audience of Hebrews, we may be bent towards the worship of our own angels. We might be bent to the worship of the stock market, our own hobbies, our own self-interests. And there are warnings in Scripture about partaking of that heavenly bread in an unworthy manner. Because it is at that table where there is mystic, sweet communion with God as we partake of the Son through the mouth of faith. See, the history of Israel, as referenced here in Hebrews chapter 3, with the quotation of Psalm 95, it speaks to the fact that intimate communion with God, it it sets you up under a tent of incredible blessings. Intimate communion with God, it sets you under a tent of incredible blessings. But it also sets you under a tent of heightened sanctions. To partake of that body and that blood is to recognize, to discern the divine sacrifice and the full sufficiency of the sacrifice at that. But it is also a pledge. When you partake of that meal, it is a pledge. It is a public declaration that you are set apart from the world and you intend to follow the way of the cross. That meal, when we eat it, is fuel for the fight of Christian obedience. It's fuel for the fight of Christian holiness. For after all, God's call of you, the very reason you were called, according to Paul, is to be holy and blameless before him. That meal is nourishment for those that in this wicked and perverse generation are told to hold fast to our confidence and hope. You can see that in Hebrews 3, verse 6. That is nourishment so we can run the race well and enter into the house of rest. We, you and I, who have that continual sustenance, we also risk the danger of eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves and hearing those dreaded words of verse 11. If we forsake the message of that communion, if we forsake the message of that meal, we don't want to hear the words of verse 11. Those are awful words. They shall not enter my rest. In Numbers 14.30, the Lord tells the Israelites, you will certainly not enter my land. Out of that generation, you'll remember, only Caleb and Joshua entered the Lord's rest. Only they entered Canaan. But Canaan, as you and I know, and as the author of Hebrews makes abundantly clear, Canaan was a typological rest and a typological land. It was a type or a foreshadow of our true rest that our covenantal God has in store for us, the rest that is resting and feasting in his presence. Now, you and I, we are now warned and confronted almost directly as individuals in the text today. Particularly in verses 12 through 14, it is as if the author of Hebrews shines a light and calls each of us out by name. He says, take care. Take care, we are told. Be alert. Watch out. Watch that none of you have your hearts hardened. So we should ask, 
Well, how do we keep from falling individually? If we're called out individually, and we are told not to fall away, how do we keep from falling individually? Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do you keep from falling individually? The answer is don't be an individual. Stand communally. Be around the brethren. Get to church where you are around like-minded individuals who will exhort you every day. The exhortations, the reeling us back in, it needs to be constant. Because as we just sang before, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And this place right here, where we are gathered right now, the church is the place that woos the affections of the heart back to their proper ends. Our affections are bent. They are disordered. And they are bent towards lesser goods and many times towards evils. But the church exhorts and calls. As the means of grace are dispensed here, as the word is preached, and as the sacraments are administered, as we pray communally, we are brought to a place where we can say to our loving Father about our wandering hearts, we could say, take our hearts, O take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. But we need each other for that. We need each other. We need the exhortation of the church. For as the third century church father Cyprian famously said, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. Man is not an island. He is made in the image of God. And God is triune. He exists in perfect community, a community of interpenetrating co-equal love. And we best reflect that image when we are a community. And to reflect God's image, that's the only way to live up to our purpose. And the better we reflect God's image, well, the less likely we are to fall away. We need the exhortation of our brothers and sisters. We need the public exhortation of ministers of the gospel. We need that in a profound way. We need ministers who are going to hold up the history of Israel. Hold it up before our eyes so that it leads us through them to Christ. So God, he's given us a warning. But he's also given us tools to assist us and to preserve us on this pilgrimage. He's given us his word, which Augustine calls God's face for now. And he has given us his church as the primary, the principal means for proclaiming that word. He's given us the church as the primary and the principal means for exegeting that word, for preaching that word. And this church of God, it is not some religious organization. It's not a dead relic of antiquity. It's not a cute little social club that happens to hold some nostalgic value for us. The church he has given us It is the bride of the son. The building and the preservation of the church is the very reason for which the world exists. The world exists for the church. The church does not exist for the world. The world exists for the church. That's what it's here for. As Jonathan Edwards so beautifully put, the father created the world so that the spirit could prepare a bride for the son. 
The Father created the world so that the Spirit could prepare a bride for the Son. So we are the bride of the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. So it is our duty to gather here so that we can see him clearly and proclaim him boldly so that we will not fall away. That, after all, that's the greatest commandment, right? That we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. And the second commandment, Jesus tells us, it's like it. Love our neighbors as ourselves. But in light of this passage, well, how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Well, to love your neighbor is to invite them into this fellowship, into this life. Here we gaze upon Christ, and out there... We ought to reflect him in such a way as we draw others in. We draw them in to do the same. The world is hungry, but it is only right there where there is food that can satisfy them. That's the only place. No other place. Praise the Lord for his church and for its head, Christ Jesus, the bread of heaven. Let us feed upon him constantly, continually. Let us listen to him so that we might enter his rest. Amen.